Well, at the church that I pastor, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts. We've made it to Acts 19. The next passage that I'll preach for my church family is Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. And that's what I'll share with you this morning. So if you haven't already started to turn there in your Bible, please do so now to Acts 19. Let me open with another brief prayer. Father, we pray that you would work in us what is pleasing to you. And we pray you would help us to gaze upon your beauty in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 19, verse 21. This scripture passage is actually the beginning of a new major section of this book. It begins the last major section of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts is structured around several summary statements that are scattered throughout the book. And these summary statements are like seams that stitch together the major parts of Acts. The last of these literary seams is found in Acts 19, verse 20. And that sums up the, the main ministry of Paul's third missionary journey by saying... So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, the next verse, Acts 19, 21, introduces what's going to happen in the rest of Acts. Look down at your Bibles at verse 21. It says, now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. That's what the rest of Acts is about. Constrained by the Spirit, Paul goes to Jerusalem and then to Rome. But before Paul sets out for Jerusalem through Macedonia, he decides he needs to stay put in Ephesus for just a bit longer. And and he sends some co-workers ahead of him. You'll see that in verse 22 having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, Asia was the Roman province where Ephesus was. And during Paul's time here in Ephesus, he he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and he told them why he was staying in Ephesus for a while. 1 Corinthians 16, he wrote, I will stay in Ephesus. Until Pentecost. And here's why. For a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And there are many adversaries. So I need to stay longer in this place because there's a lot of really good opportunities for me to minister. And there are a lot of really serious threats to the church still here. So the rest of Acts 19, what we'll see, the Holy Spirit tells us about one final event that happened in Ephesus while Paul was there before he departed. And it shows us who some of these adversaries were and why they were so adversarial to the gospel and how the Lord protected his church through that. So verse 23 introduces the big conflict. Look at that. Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning The way. Well, there's the first main point of our passage. The way disturbs the world. 
the way disturbs the world. And not just a little bit, verse 23 said. Now, Christianity is called the way here, and that fits a broader pattern in Acts. Acts 9-2 describes Christians as those belonging to the way. Acts 22-4, Paul reflects on his past life, and he says, I persecuted the way. Acts 24, 14, Paul says, I worship God according to the way. Earlier in this chapter, Jews in Ephesus in Acts 19, 9, speak evil of the way. And in other verses in Acts, describe the gospel about Christ as the way of salvation, the way of the Lord, the way of God. See, true Christianity is not just a worldview. It is a way. It is not just a set of doctrines to believe. It is a path to walk, a a whole course of life based on those doctrines. It's more than just accepting certain truths. It is walking in a certain direction, a way, because of how you're hoping in those truths. And actually, it would be better for us to put it more personally, as our brother said earlier. Biblical Christianity means walking in a certain direction, and that direction is following after a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture doesn't just call Christianity the way. It calls Christ himself the way. When Jesus came preaching the gospel, he would call disciples to faith and to salvation by saying, follow me, walk this way to me and then behind me. This is the best of news. God has made a way for us to draw near to him and walk with him through the sacrifice of his son. And all who believe are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, I want you to consider that Christianity especially disturbs the world because it is a way. I mean, privately held religious beliefs that don't really affect the way that you live is not that disturbing to anyone. But the progress of the gospel in Ephesus caused no little disturbance because real saving faith means all of life is now spent walking in a new direction. Even so, why would that disturb the world so much? Well, part of it is because... The word calls this faith the way to exclude other ways. This simple title for our faith actually implies something explosive. This is the only way to the only God, the only way to be saved, the only way to walk if you want to walk with God is following behind the Lord Jesus. And the other way... The only the other reason that the way disturbs the world is because this way runs contrary to the way the world is walking. Uh, See, becoming a Christian is not just like finding a new road to drive on. It's like starting to drive on the left side of the road instead of the right. It's not just a different way to walk. It's, It's a contrary way to walk. It's a new way that causes head on collisions with the old way, the way the world is going. And Paul, when he later wrote back to these believers in this city of Acts 19, Ephesus, he reminded them their salvation meant walking in a new, contrary 
way. He said, you, you were before salvation dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. But now you've been saved by the grace of God, and so you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but you must walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So walk in love as Christ loved us, and walk as children of the light, and, and be careful to walk in wisdom, because the days are evil. Make the best use of the time. Christianity is a way. Now, in the rest of this chapter, we'll see the way disturbs the world, especially because it endangers some things the world especially prizes. Down in verse 27, the ringleader of a citywide riot says, there is danger. Danger because of this way that Paul is preaching. And verse 24 introduces us to the instigator. Look at verse 24. A man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, don't miss the connection between the language of verse 23 and verse 24. Uh, No little disturbance arose, verse 23, because it was messing up no little business, verse 24. And so the silversmith, Demetrius, he tells his fellow tradesmen, This way is starting to threaten our wealth. See that in verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth or our prosperity. It depends on this business. And that's the next main point of this passage. The way is a danger to worldly wealth. Paul was preaching Christ. People were believing, and so it was changing their whole course of life, including the way they spent their money. Saving faith should be seen on your bank statements somehow. The way affects the wallet, how you spend, what you spend. And so these Ephesians who were in the idol-making business were starting to feel the economic effects of the word of God prevailing mightily in their city. And the verses we we read told us Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen were especially wealthy because they were making silver shrines of Artemis. And Artemis was a prominent Greek goddess of fertility and also a patron of hunting. Uh, She was identified with the Roman goddess Diana. And her great temple was in Ephesus. And many people from the wider world would come to this temple. And for the right price... When you went home, you could take with you a little silver, uh, silver replica of this temple or a little silver shrine to, to bring her sacrifices and prayers somehow or a little silver replica of the image of Diana herself. Now, of course, those who lived in Ephesus also purchased this idolatry merchandise uh, to bring, they thought, the blessing of Artemis into their home with them and wherever they went. So Demetrius's work was big business. The Ephesian silversmiths gained considerable wealth by this. And the nerve of this Paul, he's killing our sales. And Demetrius 
brings a specific complaint against him, Paul, in verse 26. Look there, it says, You see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, Gods made with hands are not gods. Now, Demetrius and his friends didn't stop to think. Maybe Paul has a point. Maybe these silver images we're making aren't really divine. No, no. I mean, who's got time to think about what's true about God when our money is in danger? Right? I mean, our country might be in a recession. Who can really focus on the truth about God at a time like this? Perhaps there are many in our country now, perhaps some in this room who were caught in the same snare that Demetrius was caught in, this preoccupation with worldly wealth that it might be in danger, was smothering any real concern that he had to consider the truth and glory of God. And his standing before this God. I think the real God of these men was not so much Artemis as it was their income. Uh, we, We could say Artemis was just the surface idol and their commitment to her grew out of a, a deeper heart idol, money. And the way of God is a danger to those who serve almighty dollar. Those who live for Christ and those who live for earthly riches are walking in opposite directions. And sometimes they collide. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one or despise and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And cannot means it's impossible. You cannot be devoted to God and money. You will be devoted to one or the other. And Jesus said you'll end up despising the other. And that's because devotion to one is a danger to devotion to the other. You see that? The way gets in the way of worldly wealth. Often. It happened here in Ephesus. It happened back in Acts 16 in Philippi. Now, tragically, there are some people today who try to use the way of Christ like The pagan silversmiths in Ephesus used the cult of Artemis. They imagined that even the true religion is a means of material gain. Some today would have told Demetrius in Acts 19, Sir, you do not need to be disturbed by this way. Your wealth is not in danger. Come to Christ and he will cause your worldly wealth to abound all the more. That's not the way. The word says the desire to be rich and the love of money are sins that you need to repent of to come to Christ, not proper motivations for coming to Christ. As if he promises to grant you those things. No, actually, he promises to grant you better things. 
the treasure Jesus gives us. That Jesus died to purchase for us is greater than silver or gold. God in his glory, a share in his kingdom, a share in his holiness, forgiveness. It's better. Now, I think we're supposed to view the actions of these craftsmen, especially in light of the actions of the believers in the same town that we saw right before these verses or that that our church saw last week. I'll show you in a little bit. So we've seen now the, the silversmiths who make silver shrines of Artemis, and they're all concerned about their wealth. In a few verses before, we saw Christians showing total disregard to the amount of silver that it might cost them to follow Christ. Look up in verse 19. It says, A number of believers who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They're old sorcery books. And they counted the value of those books and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Went up in smoke. And that seems fresh in our mind when we see these silversmiths then, who by contrast are willing to whip the whole city up into a riot to keep their wealth. These two consecutive scenes illustrate this truth that you cannot serve silver and the Savior. You, you can choose to follow Demetrius and follow Judas Iscariot and choose silver instead of the Savior. But your end will be like his. If you follow Jesus Christ, your end will be like his. Resurrected in glory, free from all of the effects of sin, Fitted for unhindered joy with God, all because of his death for you. Now, even if you are now following Christ and and are a believer, you still need to hear and heed the warning that Jesus gave even his disciples. Be on your guard against all covetousness. And you need to be prepared to be opposed for living like money does not matter most to you. Because sometimes that might endanger the worldly ambitions of people around you. You may need to make choices that magnify the worth of God, but do not maximize the financial gain that could come to your family or your boss or your business partner, or someone else, if you just chose otherwise. Friends, don't get scared off the narrow way that leads to life just because it disturbs the world around you. It's worth it. God is worth it. Now, in the next verse, Demetrius's argument shifts, and he moves beyond the financial dangers brought by the way, and and he expresses concern over what else this way is endangering. Look at verse 27. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, 
and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, her greatness. She whom all Asia and the world worship. So our trade may come into disrepute. Repute. You hear the word reputation. See, the way is not just a danger to our riches. It's a danger to our reputations. And on this point, Demetrius expands the alarm beyond just the concern of the silversmiths in town. And he says the reputation of the whole city is at stake. The way is a danger to our city's big claim to fame. The great temple that we have in our midst. If what Paul keeps saying keeps spreading, this temple could come to be regarded as nothing. And remember now, all of Asia and the whole world now come to us here to worship her. So if her greatness is in danger of being brought down, then our special place in the world is in the same danger. You see that? That's the next main point of our passage. The way is a danger to worldly greatness. The way is a danger to worldly greatness. So again, I think the the people's commitment to the goddess Artemis might be thought of as a surface idol that's rooted in a deeper commitment to a deeper heart idol, which is the city's reputation in the world. Their own greatness in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. And that's why the craftsmen cry out like they do in response to what Demetrius is saying. They declare not just the greatness of Artemis, but but also the greatness of Ephesus. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see, the way was undermining the thing that made them feel important in the world. The thing that put them on the map. The thing that made them distinguished above others. And that's why a city official, when he tries to calm down this riot that forms, he seeks, first of all, to to coddle the city's sense of self-importance rooted in this temple in Artemis. Look down at verse 35. You'll see that. Verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper, temple keeper or, or guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, from heaven. So seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So he says, hey, 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 calm down. Everybody calm down. Everybody knows indisputable fact that our city is the special keeper, the special guardian of this great temple, the special guardians of this sacred stone that's inside of it, that that fell down from the sky. Some suggest that uh, an image of Diana in the temple was maybe part of a meteorite or something like that that had fallen from the heavens supposedly sometime before. Now, I think if you will really understand the city's fear and their pride here, you need to know more about this temple in Ephesus. And, and really, in many ways, in terms of worldly greatness, it was unparalleled. It was four times larger 
than the Parthenon in Athens. There were 127 gigantic, majestic pillars that held 60 feet up in the air, a white marble roof. And for good reason, this was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there was one Greek poet, Antipater of Sidon, who said that this temple of Artemis in Ephesus was the most wonderful of them all. He wrote, I have set eyes on the lofty wall of Babylon and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens of Babylon and the colossus of the sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids in Giza and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis in Ephesus that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. The Ephesians had incredible personal pride in this temple. And when it was destroyed 300 years before Acts 19, Alexander the Great actually offered to pay for it to be rebuilt. And the Ephesians refused the offer. They wanted to be the ones to build it themselves. And so they did at their own expense. Bigger and better, grander than it had been before. And again, you get this picture. Many people from the wider world are flocking to Ephesus to see this. And Paul is trying to take this away from us. What he's saying about Jesus is a threat to dethrone Artemis. And if that happens, then how are we any different from all the other people in the world? How would we be the envy of anyone else? Exactly. Verse 28 told us the craftsmen were enraged when they considered this danger to their worldly greatness. So they they take to the streets shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And from here, things escalate quickly. Look at verse 29. The city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So there's confusion. The other people aren't really sure what's going on. But the slogan that they hear the silversmith saying, we can get behind that. So they join the mob and start shouting, great is Artemis. And they all rush to the the city's grand gathering place, which was the theater. It was was cut into the side of a mountain outside the city. It could seat 25,000 people. And some who were going to this place knew the real cause of this outrage. And so they grabbed two of Paul's ministry co-workers and dragged them to the theater and probably in hopes of convening some kind of emergency city meeting to condemn these guys right in the heat of the moment. And they were probably looking for Paul himself, not just his co-workers, since Demetrius named Paul as the main problem. They didn't find him. Still, Paul nearly went to the theater himself. Look at verse 30. He had to be held back. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And it wasn't just the other Christians in town who were begging him, don't go. Look at verse 31. 
even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, the Asiarchs, they were part of a, a broader um, governing board in the region, the, the province of Asia that Ephesus was in. And they also tried to restrain Paul. They had become personal friends of his somehow during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. Now, Paul probably wanted to go proclaim Christ. He says, wow, look at this. The whole city has come together. And, and the way that I preach is on their minds. Let me at them. And his friends warned him, Paul, they will not listen. You'll just be handing yourself over to be killed. This is not an effective door for open ministry here. They won't listen to anyone right now. And they were right. Uh, Look down at verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. This, This verse is poking fun at how thoughtless and rash the world can be in defense of its values. Some people are yelling one thing, other people are yelling other things. And the verse said the majority of the people there did not even know why they were there. But they were crying out passionately anyway. Right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why are we yelling? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I don't know. Get those guys. Why are we angry at them? Kill them. Eventually, a Jewish man is pushed out into the center of the crowd. Verse 33 tells us that. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Now, the Jews put this man forward not to uh, rescue Paul, but probably to throw Paul under the bus and make sure that the other Jews in town weren't run over with him. To say, hey, just so you know, yeah, Paul's a Jew, but, but we don't belong to the way that he does. So don't hurt us. He never got a hearing. Look at verse 34. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, if I, if I chanted that for 12 seconds, you all would be uncomfortable. Think, when is he going to stop? Two hours. Now, they knew when they saw this man Alexander was Jewish, that whatever he was going to say, he was not going to defend the honor of the great Artemis. And therefore, the unique greatness of the city. And so they drowned him out. They, they wouldn't even let him speak. They just kept yelling with one voice, two hours, the same refrain that the craftsmen started crying out back in verse 28. Now, sadly, this is the way people often try to protect what they prize. When other ideas threaten their idols in the world. If we can just say something with enough passion, enough outrage, 
enough repetition, enough numbers on our side, then we can win the day without having to win a thoughtful argument. We're not going to try and reason that gods made with hands are gods. We're just going to chant in unison about how great Artemis is and drown out all dissenters and make people afraid of questioning our important place in the world. No room for reasonable discussion and thoughtful disagreement. Just angry insistence. Now, you should be careful not to get caught up in these same tactics of the world. Proverbs warns, be careful about an angry man that you don't become like him. Okay, the truth is on our side. The living God is with us on the way. So we should always be willing to engage with people thoughtfully and and showing honor. There are too many Christians I see today who try to defend the way with the spirit of the Ephesian mob. Now remember, earlier in Ephesus, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 19, it told us Paul was reasoning and persuading daily in the city about the gospel. Well, the city didn't respond in kind. You understand this. It's easier to just join an angry riot than it is to have ears willing to hear and a mind willing to think. It's especially easier than being willing to give up your pride and to repent of trying to establish and guard worldly greatness because you see the ultimate vanity of it. Really, you have to see the surpassing greatness of Jesus to come to the point where you're willing to do that. It's just like we sing. It is only when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, then my richest gain I can count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. As the word spread in Ephesus and Asia, the the end of verse 17 told us that the name of Jesus was extolled because of what people were hearing about him. And actually this word in verse 17 that's translated extolled, it's from the same root word as the words translated great and magnificence in our passage. So if we wanted to, to, to bring out these connections in the chapter, we could translate all these phrases as the name of Jesus was becoming great. And so the temple of the great Artemis was in danger. Her greatness was being brought down. And so the city cried out, great is she. Great are we. So the rising acknowledgement of the greatness of Jesus endangered the Ephesians' special sense of importance in the wider world world above the surrounding world they all come to us we don't go to them see the gospel is a great equalizer of men it tells us all have sinned rich poor jew gentile blue collar white collar urban center backwoods All have fallen short of the glory of God. All stand guilty and condemned before Him. 
The gospel flattens all men to the same position where no one is standing up head and shoulders above other people with their nose in the air saying, I've, I've kind of kept God's law. And because the gospel is the great equalizer of men, it is also the great enemy of human pride because pride comes from considering oneself more or better than others in some way or desiring that. And then the saving message of the way destroys pride further when it says we're saved from sin only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in what Jesus did alone, and all for the glory of the greatness of God alone. Sinners cannot be saved by any of their own works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. That's one reason, at least, Scripture gives us. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Not many of the world's great ones are called to be saved. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Rather, God made His Son to be for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So those who really belong to the way, saved by the grace of God, have this new cry in their hearts. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6. As Isaac Watts put it in one of his hymns that I love, I boast no more. He says, now, for the love, I bear his name. What was my gain, I count but loss. My former pride, I call my shame. And I nail my glory to his cross. Have you done that? Christian, are you still today living with that heart? In the final part of this chapter of Scripture, the Spirit teaches that the real danger in Ephesus that day was not actually the way, but how the city was responding to it. That's the last main point of the passage. The way is no true danger to the world. Look again in verse 35 with me, and now we'll read the rest of what the town clerk said to the town after he, uh, in his introduction, stroked the city's ego, starting in verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious, literally temple robbers, nor blasphemers of our goddess. these, These guys haven't stormed the temple. They haven't organized crowds to cry out chants against Artemis. Verse 38, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. 
And there are proconsuls, the judges of those city courts. Let them bring charges against one another. And if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. That was the the lawful democratic meeting of, of all the citizens of the city that met in that theater. Verse 40, for we really are in danger. Here's that key word again from this passage. We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. See, see, Demetrius had said the way is a danger to our wealth and our worldly greatness. But in the end, the real danger to the city is how they were reacting to the preaching of the gospel, rioting without justification, intolerant anger to the gospel. That was the real danger. And the town clerk knew we could be in real trouble with the Roman government by rioting like this. They've granted us some civic freedoms where we can kind of govern ourselves according to our Greek ideals. We, we could lose some of this. And this speech of, of the Ephesian town clerk is an important part of the apologetics of the book of Acts. It shows that if the gospel is turning the world upside down and causing unrest in cities and upsetting societies, it is not the fault of the gospel itself. The clerk said, if someone can be charged with wrongdoing this day, it's us. So despite the accusations of some in Paul's day and in our day, Christianity is not the enemy of peace and law and order and stability and human flourishing. On on the contrary, it is the world's proud, rash rejection of Christ that is the enemy of the common good. The innocence of the way is proved here. The gospel is above reproach. The Ephesians were the ones causing this big disturbance. The way is no true danger to the world. Even though it does, at times, endanger worldly wealth and greatness. All right, how do those two things fit together? They fit because living for worldly wealth and worldly greatness is not actually good for the world. So the way is only a danger to those things that are themselves dangers to the world. Pride comes before the fall. The desire to be rich plunges people into ruin and destruction. The unrivaled glory of Jesus is what is good for the world. Now there's one other truth I want you to see in this chapter. Think, okay, what did God work through to protect the believers from unjust harm? Here at the end of chapter 19. He worked through the orderly structures of decent human government. See that? Verse 38. If Demetrius has a complaint against the Christians, he's not free to just go whack those guys. He can bring charges in the city court and and try and show how Paul has uh, broken some established law. And if he wants to go further, if there's a public charge, he can go into the, the lawfully convened a democratic assembly and try and argue his case through proper procedures. But we see here the common grace of God 
that is decent human government. God can work through decent government to enforce the truth that Christianity is no true danger to the world. Now, in Acts, we've seen the gospel spreads through persecution. Even at times, sponsored persecution from evil governments. But that's not what we pray for. We see also in Acts that the gospel spreads because God pours out his restraining grace on humanity through decent human government that holds back unjust, rash, violent hostility to the way. And and so Paul is going to write a letter to Timothy when he's in this city, Ephesus. And he says, y'all need to pray for kings and those who are in high places, all those who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And the Ephesians would have understood exactly what he was talking about because they had seen firsthand what happened on this riot. And the temporal blessing that comes to people and to the church and, and to the spread of the gospel. Whenever there is good government, even if it's not godly government that, that acknowledges Christ, we pray for this. We pray for it because it's only a gift from God whenever that happens in any nation in the world. And you're supposed to pray for your brothers and sisters around the world who live in places where if a riot breaks out against them, they will not survive because there's not decent government to hold back this kind of action. Well, ultimately, right, we we look forward to the day when the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdoms of this world becomes the, the kingdom of God and of our Christ and he reigns forever. But in the meantime, we we pray And we spread the word. And with my last words, I want to appeal to you that if you are someone who is still following the course of this world, you must repent of your living in defiance against God and come walk with God on the way that he has opened for you to be right with him. And if you don't feel worthy to be on the way of God's salvation, then your head is in the right place because you're not because of all your sins. But I'll tell you this, God is worthy to have you on this way, to magnify his grace, to save a sinner like you and like me because of what his son has done for us. And if you will only believe on Christ and follow him, you will be saved. And God will tune your heart to boast in him for all your days and all of eternity. God, thank you for this word and for this salvation you've given us. God, we say together, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.